I was reminded of a, a game as I was preparing for this message. I was reminded of a game we used to play in college. Uh, maybe you used to play this game too, but we would just kind of be sitting around at the Baptist dorm up there, and, and somebody would start it. It really wasn't a game game. It was just talking, but it kind of was a regular thing we'd do. Somebody would ask the question, would you rather... Anybody ever play this game? Would you rather? And usually you would give two choices that were difficult. Um, sometimes it may be, would you rather kiss a certain person or, you know, eat an entire box of Oreo cookies or something like that. Um, sometimes they were grosser type questions. But I have a few would you rathers to think about. Would you rather be someone who constantly spilled food on your clothes or tripped you know, frequently on stairs? So you're the guy who walks around with the big stains or the person that has to avoid stairs? Would you rather fight one tiger-sized duck or three duck-sized tigers? <laughs> Think about it. Would you rather for, you know, be rich and ugly or poor and good looking? Um, don't, don't think like you're already two of those things. Or, um, would you rather for the rest of your life speak like Mickey Mouse or Batman? <laughs> well, sometimes when we have would you rathers, we have choices that they both seem pretty good, and it's choosing which one is better. And sometimes we have these where neither one is good. Do you really want to spend the rest of your life always spilling your food all over your clothes or tripping every time you come to stairs? Well, I'm going to present you with the choice that the world faces. And the world is destined for either anarchy or totalitarianism, unless the Trinity saves us. How do we know this? Well, we, we know this from looking back at history and our past. We also know this from what's happening to us right now, and especially uh, true in the West, and especially true in the United States. What's going to hold us together? What's going to prevent us from either spinning off where everybody just breaks down into smaller and smaller and smaller groups? Or what's going to hold us together? And the way the world works, the only thing that can hold us together is, is, is someone or a group of someones who's more powerful than everyone else. They force us to stay together. I say we're experiencing this in the United States more than ever because the United States is, is, is interesting it, in, in some ways. It's an oddity. It's, it was, it's unique. And really, you, you, you don't find this happening very often up until the United States was formed. And I can only think of one other example, and it's not a perfect parallel, and that's actually what we find with, with Israel. But when the nation of the United States was formed, 
the, the nation was formed on the basis of an idea. We were called the great experiment. We were people from, from so many different backgrounds. And what held us together is that we agreed to an idea. We agreed to this idea that was expressed in, our, in the Declaration of Independence and, and, and later in the U.S. Constitution. And there was no other reason for us to be connected. We weren't the same race. We, we, didn't, we can't trace our lineage of our leaders back centuries. There's no royal house. We can't say that, you know, God has somehow ordained this family to, to lead us. We had nothing that held us together except this idea. And if you've been observing what's happening in American culture, there have been there's always been disagreements about how to interpret the idea, how to interpret the Declaration of Independence, how to interpret the Constitution. There's always been disagreements. But what's happening now is no longer just disagreeing. There's a growing number of people that no longer agree with those documents at all. They don't want to reinterpret the idea. They want to get rid of the idea. And you might be thinking like, oh, he must be talking about those people on the you know, political left. Well, I could be, but I could also be talking about people politically on the right. It kind of transcends parties. It's kind of the result of what's called, and I'm gonna use a big term, so don't be freaked out by it, but postmodern deconstructionism. In other words, it's the looking back at all of these, these social structures that had held our societies together and, and there's the deconstructing of them. Sometimes the deconstruction is good because, you know, you deconstruct, you put back together, make it better, fix the things that need to be fixed. But oftentimes deconstructionism means getting rid of, leaving behind these things that held us together. And so when we think about what's, what lies ahead for our nation, we look, are we going to continue to break down into smaller and smaller groups? Are we going to continue to identify ourselves by, you know, increasingly by our ethnicity or by our socioeconomic status or by our positions on, on different issues and break down more and more, which is increasingly leads to some form of anarchy? Or are we going to keep giving away our freedoms so that we can hold together? Are we going to continue to allow the, the, our, our political leaders to take away our freedoms, take away your freedom of speech, take away your freedom of religion, take away all of these things so that we can stay together? You, we're either going to be forced to stay together or we're not. We're not going to be together. And the only thing that, that, that holds on, that, the only hope that we have, as far as I can see, it's the Trinity. By the way, this doesn't mean this is going to happen tomorrow. It's happening now. If you're not paying attention, it's happening now. 
we see more and more uh, things that are happening in our society that are like, showing us this is, this, these are the disruptions that are happening. We're seeing it more and more. But I'm not telling you, like, you know, you need to, you know, move to another country. I'm not telling you to sell your house. I'm not telling you even to, to give up. I'm just telling you that this is, what, this is where it leads. What has held societies together, if it's not these bonds of, that we feel like we're the, same, we're the same ethnicity or the same race or part of the same family or the same tribe, the only thing that holds us together is power. And so this, this, this week has been a really good week for, for me personally because it is the most I've thought about and talked about the Trinity for a long, long time. You know, just before the conference, we were sitting, we were sitting over there in the, in the prayer room and just talking as we were eating the delicious food. Um, and we were just chatting and, and just to have, you know, these discussions about the Trinity. You know, Wednesday night, if you came to our Wednesday night study, that's where I, I unpack you know, what we're going to talk about this Sunday. And, and, and we talked about the Trinity then. Tomorrow night, our, our last study in our study of who is Jesus, we're going to talk about the connection between the atonement and the Trinity. And of course, we had the conference. I, I tell you this, I, I wrote you guys the letter that I know many of you read and you get in the email or mail. And I, t- and I told you this, and I mean it. The Trinity saved my life. The Trinity saved me from just accepting something so much less than what Christianity is. But it wasn't enough that the Trinity saved my life. The Trinity helped me understand the only hope for the world. So as we, as we look at the Scriptures today, I want that to kind of just still be there in your head we're going to go to John 17, and in John 17, this is Jesus, and, and the timing seems to be it's just before the cross. Um, it's somewhere in that week. Um, and he's praying what is known as the high priestly prayer. He's praying, on, he's praying on our behalf. He's praying on the behalf of his followers. And then he's praying for himself about what he's going to face. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in Scripture, and yet, even though it's the longest, it's one that's neglected. We don't pay enough attention to this prayer. And the, the, the part that we're going to focus on is the last section. The first section, he prays for himself and what he's about to face. The second section, he prays for his disciples who are in the world at that time. And then in the third section, he prays, He prays for us. He prays for those who will believe in the word of the apostles. So let's look at that text right now. He says, I do not ask for these only. So he said, I'm not only asking for the guys, you know, and the men and the women who've been my followers here, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, they also may be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Think about this. Why, why you know, if, if we know someone we really love is, is going to die, you know, why do we want to be there? You know, when my, when my grandfather on my dad's side, when... When he was, you know, he had been told he only had a few months to live, and, and, and we went up, we were living in Texas at the time, we drove up to West Virginia, um, spent some time with him, and I remember when, when the, we, we, had, we had spent the afternoon with him, and he, had, he, had, he was having a lot of pain, so he was, he was on morphine, but he could talk, but he couldn't remember a lot of what he said. So much so that we had spent the whole afternoon with him, and then we went to Thanksgiving dinner at uh, one of our relatives' homes, and um, my cousin had gone to see him afterwards, and he couldn't remember that we were there. But I remember as we were, as we were going out of town, and we, had this, we faced this long drive back to, back to Fort Worth, I remember, um, you know, telling my wife, you know, I want to go to the hospital one more time before we drive out. And so I went, I left her and the girls in the car, and I went up. And, and, and it's because I, I, wanted to, I wanted to know that we, bo- we both knew this was the last time we were going to see each other, that we were going to be able to talk. And I remember he, he, he got up and he, and he sat on, the, on his bed in the hospital and he was trying to tell me something. You could tell, my, my grandfather never was a, was a, like a, he would never, you'd never get the impression he was a deep thinker. You know, he was, he, he owned an insurance agency. He loved to go hunting and fishing. He loved to golf. But if you ever thought like he would have this like philosophical discussion with him, no. But I remember he was struggling through the morphine to try to to tell me something. And he was trying to tell what I think for him, what he believed was the most important thing he could tell me. Think about this. This is Jesus praying He's about to face the cross. After the cross, you know, there's going to be the resurrection. There's going to be a few times that that he's together with the apostles afterwards. But here he's praying some of his last words. 
And he prays for us. And the thing he prays for us is for our, un- our unity. Look at what he says there. That they may all be one. Jesus wants his people to be united. To me, it's, it's, I've been in churches where, where there's not been unity. In fact, it's been quite the opposite. Oh, sometimes the church kind of hangs together and the people keep showing up. But there's no unity. There's no sense of cooperation and working together and everybody pulling in the same direction and moving towards this. And I'm not talking about the, the, you know, the absence of disagreements or the absence of, of you know, problems. There's always going to be disagreements and problems. I, I mean like kind of a deep-seated, I'm living my life, doing things my way, leave me alone. Or let me just do what I want to do here in the church and, and I don't, you know, the rest of you do whatever you want to do, but I, I, I'm going to do this. Sometimes it breaks out into, you know, all-out war. During the Revolutionary War, I'm just going to tell you something about Baptists. During the Revolutionary War, the, the American military leaders, they loved Baptists. They loved when they would be in their ranks. You know why? Because they know how to fight, you know? And it's sad because sometimes Baptists are known for the fact that they, that they fight. They argue all the time. Baptists don't have a monopoly on that. Other, other people do the same. But we have to understand, if this is what Jesus is praying for, and we're not doing the thing that he's praying for, we're failing at the most important thing, this grieves our Savior. This grieves our God. Unity is not just a good idea. It's not just a general vague term. As we're going to see, it's, it's essential to to the mission that God's given to us as a church. But I want you to understand, he, he, he's, talking about, he's talking about unity, but he's not just talking about a unity that's, that's forced. He's not talking about a unity that comes because, because we're all the same. You know, if all of you were cool, you know, bald, Korean, Howley, you know, it would be a lot easier to be united. We would all know, like, oh, where do you want to go to for lunch? We'd all agree. Go to the same place, right? What do you want to do? Where can we have our church fellowship? It would be at the golf course. Um, you know, we would all get together before Bible study and go on an hour-long run. Right, Eric? Wouldn't it be under- wonderful? Because we're all the same. We all think the same. We all do the same things. That's not unity. That's what's called uniformity. Some churches kind of try to 
develop uniformity, by getting everybody to think and believe and act and be the same. Other, other churches don't waste their time with that. They only like, try to attract a certain group. I remember a long time ago when I was a summer missionary in, in California and there was this, this pastor who was trying to plant a church and he's like, all I need is five or six couples in their 20s and then we can build the church. I was like, hmm. So you don't need who God is going to provide for you? What was he thinking? I need to get a group of people who are all the same so we can attract more people who are all the same. And that's how we're going to grow. I'm going to tell you, from a worldly standpoint, that works. It's a reason churches attract. You know, churches that are considered young attract young people. Churches that are considered old attract older people. It's why you have a church that's based on one ethnicity or another, they work. To some level, they work. But they don't reflect the unity that Jesus is talking about. Notice, he says, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's, there's, it's not like, hey, we're... You know, we're the same. There's a reason we say Father and we say Son and we say Spirit. It reminds us that there is a distinction. And it should remind us that if we're going to have the unity of the Trinity, it doesn't come about because we all become exactly the same. And I think it would be an incredible tribute to me if you all shaved your heads and we showed up next week. But it wouldn't mean anything in terms of unity. The unity he's inviting us to is that unity of the, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And as we talked about over this weekend, that unity is expressed in love. Jesus wants our unity to be the same as the unity of the Trinity. That's why he says, as we are one. And again, it's, this, it's this, this two constructs that the world has to deal with. One is, is the one that's dominant, and it is the power construct. It is, we, we, we do everything based on, on, on acquiring power, being protected by power, when we come together as a church, we make decisions, it's based on power. If, you know, any relationships, even in our, in our marriages, in our families, they're, they're power-based. And I'm going to tell you, if you're dealing with the fallen world, it's what they often have to be. They have to be power-based. You know, I've talked about this in terms of marriage before, that, that if, if husband and wife, if the basis of your relationship is power, then eventually there's only two things that will happen. One, either you'll be a loser or you'll be married to a loser. 
Neither one is a good option. But when we have the same unity of the Trinity, it's not based on power, it's based on love. And it's based on God's love, God's selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. The love that, that, that you know, we've talked about that, that, that has love for your, your enemies, strangers, family, friends. It's not a love that, that you, you choose to do anymore. It's a love that it's who you are in Christ. And we've talked about the standard. God's standard for love is that we love everyone perfectly all the time. I remind myself of that all the time because it reminds me that I cannot do that on my own. I need him. But that is to be the basis of our unity. That is to be the basis of our relationship. It's this love that only comes from God. And we've talked about this before, but let's remind ourselves of this because I need to be reminded of it. There's a difference between love and the expressions of love. If you're a Christian, your nature is to love because you've been born of God and God is love. But the expressions of love, that's where it's different. That's where we have choice. That's where we can get it horribly wrong sometimes. But make no mistake, if we're truly Christians, if we've truly been born of God, love is not a choice. The only choice there is how we love. So Jesus wants us to be united. He wants that unity to be the same as the unity of the Trinity. And he wants us to have the same unity with him. Paul writes a lot of times, he uses this little phrase that we might just run over. He'll, he'll use this phrase, and oftentimes it'll be something like, in Christ. Or it will be, he'll sometimes say, in him. Sometimes he does a variation on it. But he's, what he's talking about is he's talking about, as Christians, you have, a, you have a new level of existence. You no longer see the world the way the rest of the world sees the world. You no longer see people the way the rest of the world sees each other. You, you see things, you feel things, you experience things in unity with Jesus Christ. You know, they, they, they say this happens, I'm not sure it's happened in our family, um, I'm hoping not. But they say like the longer a married couple is together, the more they begin to resemble each other. I, I never want to wake up and look and see my wife looking like me. Um, that would be troubling. Or maybe they say, it about, um, they say it about your dogs too. You know, like you know, the, the owner begins to resemble the dog um, more and more. Or maybe the dog resembles the owner. They say it about churches too. They say, like, you know, the, 
if you know, the pastor, the longer the pastor's there, the more the church be, you know, kind of reflects his personality. Again, scary. But where I think it, it is true is that if we understand we are, we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who, who Paul says is the head of the church, if we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ, if we're in him, if we have that same unity that we're to have with each other that he has with the Father, we have with him, what do you think is more likely to happen? He's going to become more like us or we're going to become more like him. It's this truth that we that we can know that if we will live our lives, even with the understanding that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us, and we go through everything in life, I think things will happen to us. I think we'll complain a lot less. I think we'll see beauty when other people don't see beauty. I think we'll see hope and experience love and peace and joy. We will, we will want to extend grace because we're in Christ and he's in us. And he's affecting us. He's changing us. By the way, there's the other side of it too. When you see things, when you experience things the way Jesus does, you also will understand tragedy more. You won't just hear about something and go, ah, okay, that's too bad for them. You won't, you won't hear something going on in another part of the United States or another part of the world and just go, oh man, that's terrible. And then jump back to your life. You won't hear about things that you know, we've talked about here in some of our conferences about, about you know, human trafficking. You won't hear about that and just go, okay, it's going on. I'll pray about it. No. When you start to see the things the way Jesus sees, you're not, you don't just see the beauty. You see the tragedy. You don't just experience joy. You begin to understand the despair that people are feeling. Just warning you. You get both. But the great thing is, is that if you're in Christ, and Christ is in you, if you're sharing in that fellowship, you not only see the tragedy, but you know the hope and you can bring that hope to the darkest situations. You can bring that light, that salt, to every situation that needs it. You can bring healing. You can bring reconciliation. This unity is more than just this feeling like, oh, oh yeah, unity with Jesus. It's kind of this kind of 
abstract or kind of this nebulous kind of feeling we have. Or maybe you're like, oh yeah, we're all just, you know, standing around the campfire and Jesus is there and we're singing and we sense his presence. It's more than that. We also see here where he says, he repeats this several times throughout this whole chapter, but he says, so that the world may believe. See, I said his unity, our unity with him is more than just for our joy and our blessedness. Our unity is the witness to the world. I've said this before and I'll always say this, if God had asked me his advice about his plan, I would have said, God, I think you're crazy. I would have asked first if I could call him crazy. But I would have said, I think you're crazy. You want to use human beings to reveal you in this world? Why? That's his plan. His plan is is that in local churches, in, among Christians all over the world, his plan is their unity, their love for one another, the way they, they go through life together, that reveals who I am to the rest of the world. See, we don't always like that. We, we, we want more like, you know, give us marching orders. Tell us what to do. He did tell us what to do. You know, we want to plan. We want to, you know, go out and, you know, go on the offensive. But he's told us what to do. And he's empowered us to do it. But make no mistake, it's so that the world may believe. The world may believe that you have sent me. Father, you've sent me. And of course, when Jesus is saying this, it's attached to the reason he was sent. His mission, his purpose. Later on, he'll, he'll talk that. He'll, he'll, he'll say the same thing. Even though, it says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and I've made, made myself known. But he's also talking about that the world know that, that you didn't just send me, but that you loved them even as you loved me. It's crazy. But it's God's plan. And I guess the question we have to ask ourselves, which I think this question can be simultaneously hopeful but also feel a little condemning. But the question is this, how are we doing? If this is God's plan, if this is he saying, I want to be revealed through the church, I want when, when the rest of the world looks at the church, they see the love I have for, for the son who I sent and the love I have for them. How are we doing? That's why the premium is, is 
on for us to be a healthy church. And we've talked about, you know, this healthy church is, is this community of disciples united by the Spirit. It's why every aspect of that is important. But we war against that. We, we want to keep, the, we want to stay, stay, stay separate. We are the proof. What does it take? It takes a church that is in, so in love with Jesus and so in love with each other. It's not enough just to say, I love Jesus. No. It's not enough to say, I have great love for God. Those things are important. But it's that we have love with each other. That we're so in love with each other. It's not this fairy tale kind of love. It's not all this sweetness. Oh, we all just get along, you know. I had a friend, I haven't checked in lately, but early in their marriage, they said, this had been about a year, we never fight. It's like, like my wife and I had been married for a couple of years and I could never say we never fight. We never fight. They said, we always get along. We never fight. I'm like, how is this possible? You never disagree. Well, I haven't checked in 10, 15, 20 years later, asked how's that held up. But let me tell you something. The fact that we are all different, the fact that, that we are still struggling with sin, the fact that, that even though we've been redeemed, we've been made new, we, we're not there yet. It's only, it's only logical, it's only reasonable to say, we're gonna have our moments. We're gonna disagree. As I've said before, real love is messy. Real community is awkward. It's scary, dangerous, but it's beautiful. And it's what we're called to be in the church. If we want to fulfill this mission of reflecting God to the world, of revealing God in this world, we're a church that's so in love with Jesus and so in love with each other, but also we're a church that holds fast to God's Word. As we talked about this past weekend. It's not just love, it's holy love. We can't separate God's law from God's love. They go together. In God's law, he's trying to help us understand the best way to express his love. And I know that what often happens in our society and even in our churches is, is we just want to talk about love, but we want to leave behind God's Word. And it's hard, there's great temptation to compromise. 
great temptation. But we cannot leave behind his law. You see, if we don't have guidance, if we're just left on our own to, and just said, just love each other, it will cease to be love. It will be Lord of the Flies or something worse. It will cease to be love. Oh, it still may feel lovey, but it won't be love. We need a standard. We need direction. We need instruction. And we need to be reminded again and again. So if you think about it, do you, do you want a world of love and equality and opportunity and, and true tolerance and true joy and true peace, not a false one forced upon us by government or cultural bullying? If you want that, the only hope is the Trinity. The only hope is that we know the unity of the Trinity and that as that's revealed to the world, more and more of the world sees that hope. Implications for us? We can't change the world if we're not willing to change ourselves. If you're stuck, uh, this is who I am, and you know, God made me this way. Don't blame God. You can't change the world without changing yourself. And you can't change yourself. Not in the way you need to be changed. Jesus has to change you. You know, and if you're like, well, you know, those are all good ideas, uh, you know, but I'm just going to keep doing things the way I do things. To, to, for you, I would just say, until you get there, that's great. Have a nice life. Don't try to change anything because you'll only make it worse. You see, the world doesn't just need change. The world needs to be transformed into this kingdom. It's radical. It's radical love. It's supernatural. Can we get there? I don't know. I just know that God has called us to show the world the way. Can we do it? 